0: everyone. Good morning. Welcome to this reading of the Fort Dodge Messenger. This is the Tuesday, February 14th edition. is brought to you here on the morning of Wednesday, February 15th. Hope you're having a great start to your day as we take a look at some of the headlines before we take a check at the forecast. Secor, whose last name is spelled S-E-C-O-R, takes seat on Fort Dodge Council. Conrad administers oath of office. That's a story by Bill Shea. Also, Iowa Central to celebrate Black History Month with concert. Story by Brandon Bruschke. And no injuries in Monday morning house fire. Story by Kelby Wingert. Amongst uh, the fourth headline, which is a very serious story, seven arrested following search warrant. Stolen gun recovered. Story by Kelby Wingert. These stories and more. But first, let's take a check of the forecast here in this reading of the Fort Dodge Messenger. We well, can expect for today, your Wednesday, mostly cloudy and windy conditions. The high of 30 degrees, that high temperature falling to around 23 by 5 this afternoon. Windy conditions as well, with winds out of the northwest gusting as high as 32 miles per hour. For tonight, you can expect a 40% chance of snow. As of the reading of this Tuesday afternoon, chances may go higher in that amount of time. Cloudy conditions with a low around 12 degrees for your overnight. Tonight, wind chill values as low as negative 5. Also, blustery winds and gusts out of the north up to 30 miles per hour. Looking at possibly up to an inch of snow possible. But again, for your night overnight, a low of around 12 degrees above. With wind chill values as low as negative 5. For tomorrow your Thursday, you can expect a 20% chance of snow before noon. Winds blustery out of the north and northwest, gusting as high as 28 miles per hour. A high near 22 degrees for your Thursday. Thursday night, mostly clear low around 2 above. Friday, sunny with a high near 29. As winter comes roaring back to us here. Friday night, mostly clear with a low around 22. In breezy conditions, Saturday, mostly sunny with a high near 43. Again, for your Wednesday. Mostly cloudy and windy, a high of 30 today. We start off with our first front-page story here. Secor takes seat on Fort Dodge Council. Conrad administers oath of office. A story by Bill Shea. Councilwoman Megan Secor, the winner of last week's special election, took her seat as an at-large member of the Fort Dodge Council Monday. And what is almost certainly a rare scenario... The, she was sworn into office by the man whose term on the council she was elected to complete. Humboldt County Magistrate Nevin Conrad was a member of the council from 2016 until he resigned on October 11, 2022. His appointment to the magistrate's position prompted his resignation because Iowa's rules of judicial conduct prohibit judges and magistrates from holding political office. Very early in Monday's council meeting, Conrad led SICOR in reciting the oath of office. She then took her place at the council table, replacing former councilman Andy Fritz, who was appointed on October 24, 2022, to complete Conrad's term. However, a citizen's petition forced a special election. Fritz did not run in that election. City Manager David Firekey presented a plaque to Fritz, thanking him for his service. Thank you, Andy, Firekey said. You didn't ask for this. You were asked to serve because of your knowledge, and abilities. Secor will serve on the council through the end of this year. The at-large seat she now holds will be on the November ballot as part of the regular election cycle. The winner of that election will serve a full four-year term. All right, that ends that story. The photo here, the headline photo, shows Fort Dodge City Councilwoman Megan Secor reciting the oath of office on Monday evening during the council meeting in the municipal building. Humboldt County Magistrate Nevin Conrad officiates the swearing-in. His back is to the camera. Secor, who won last week's special election, is completing Conrad's unexpired term on the council. No injuries Monday morning in a house fire. This story by Kelby Wingert. No injuries were reported when six adults escaped a vacant Fort Dodge house that a caught fire on Monday morning, according to a press release from the Fort Dodge Fire Department. A house fire was reported at 930 South 14th Street around 1047 a.m. Fire and emergency medical crews arrived and found flames coming from windows and a door on the first floor of the two-story house. The house had been vacant for a year and had no utilities, according to the release. Six adult squatters were inside the home and sleeping when the fire broke out. All six were able to evacuate safely. One woman suffered minor smoke inhalation and was evaluated at the scene. According to Fort Dodge Fire Department press release, the occupants had been using a propane heater and candles, and the cause of the fire was a candle on the first floor. That'll do it. When firefighters arrived, they were alerted that another occupant could still be on the second floor, but after a thorough search of the house, no other occupants were found. Crews deployed two hose lines to attack the fire and were able to contain it to the first floor and extinguish the blaze in about 30 minutes. Fort Dodge Police and Webster County Emergency Management assisted on the scene. And it shows the photo here. Fort Dodge firefighters working on that house as you can see flames coming out of the door on Monday morning. House is at 930 South 14th Street in Fort Dodge. Or if I'm to say it correctly everyone, Fort Dodge. Like a true native Seven arrested following search warrant. Stolen gun recovered. Another front page story here by Kelby Winger. A mid-January search warrant execution helped the Fort Dodge Police Department make seven arrests related to multiple investigations. According to a press release sent out last week, investigators with the Fort Dodge Police Department and members of the Fort Dodge Police Department and Webster County Sheriff's Office Special Emergency Response Team, executed a search warrant at 1613 2nd Avenue South on January 18th. During the search, investigators found and seized a firearm, illegal narcotics, drug paraphernalia, and other items. As a result of the continuing investigation, seven people have been arrested and charged with an array of criminal offenses. Amanda M. Horton, age 37, of Fort Dodge, was charged with child endangerment, possession of drug paraphernalia, possession of methamphetamine, possession of a firearm by a felon, conspiracy to commit a non-forcible felony, and prohibited transfer of a firearm to an unauthorized person. According to criminal complaints during the search, an unsecured and loaded Glock 42 pistol was found wrapped in blankets on the bed of Hinton's 10-year-old child. Several cellular devices were also seized during the search, according to the criminal complaints. In a data extraction of Hinton's cell phone, a text conversation between Hinton and her 16-year-old son in which they discussed Hinton giving her son back his gun so it could be pawned until her son was off probation. The son also said the gun is hot, meaning stolen or used in the commission of a crime. Joshua A. Green Jr., age 18 of Fort Dodge, was also arrested and charged with third-degree theft and minor armed with a dangerous weapon. Green was 17 at the time of his alleged crimes and arrest. According to the criminal complaint, the Glock 42 handgun recovered by detectives during the search had been reported stolen out of a vehicle at the Holiday Inn Express at 300 South 31st Street in June of 2022. Investigators were also able to extract data from Green's cell phone that showed him in possession of the stolen handgun. Other arrests include a 16-year-old male from Fort Dodge charged with two counts of minor armed with a dangerous weapon. Two counts of possession of a firearm as a felon, one count of possession of drug paraphernalia, and one count of assault on a peace officer. A 15-year-old male from Fort Dodge charged with three counts of minor armed with a dangerous weapon. A 14-year-old male from Fort Dodge charged with two counts of minor armed with a dangerous weapon. A 15-year-old male from Mason City charged with four counts of minor armed with a dangerous weapon. Joseph J. Ward, age 18, of Mason City, was arrested on a second-degree burglary warrant out of Worth County. Hinton is being held on a $15,000 cash-only bond. Her arraignment is scheduled for February 27th. Green has been released to the supervision of the Department of Correctional Services. An arraignment date has not yet been set. The Ford Dodge Police Department says this is still an active investigation and encourages anyone with information to contact law enforcement. Anonymous tips can be submitted via Crime Stoppers by calling 515-573-1444 or by testing LEC... And the tip to 247, I think it's supposed to say texting, to 247, 274, 274, 637, whatever. Oh, sometimes people write things and it doesn't make sense, but that's okay. We'll try to make sense of it for you here at Iris. Iowa Central to, to celebrate Black History Month with a concert This written by Brandon Bruschke. Iowa Central Community College will be holding a concert for Black History Month, featuring spirituals and other types of songs Friday. The free concert is titled Spirituals, Jazz, and Folk Songs, a Black History Month celebration. It is being held in the Opera House at the Fort Museum in Frontier Village. It begins at 7 p.m. When speaking with Will Lopes, the director of vocal music at Iowa Central, about the beginnings of the concert, he said... So this is the fourth year that we have been doing this concert, and we have decided to do this concert in celebration of Black History Month. We feature a lot of jazz songs, spirituals, and folk songs, he added. A lot of African-American composers are featured, and a lot of music connected to that style is featured in celebration of that heritage. The concerts are usually hosted in the Fort Dodge Opera House. That is a partnership that we have created as well. The feel of the environment and the experience is what we want. We want to take people on that journey and almost travel a little bit to that time period where a lot of this music style kind of just flourished. Lopes continued by saying, Part of the concert is to give the students an exposure to that kind of literature and also give the opportunity for some of our students to be featured as well as they study some of that style. Setting up and running these large productions take a lot of work in planning. When discussing the production end of the concert, Lopes said, This concert is primarily done by the vocal department. This will be all my vocal ensembles. I have four choirs, so I have a concert choir called the Triton Singers. There is an ensemble called the Encore Singers, which is a show choir, and we have a vocal jazz ensemble, and we also have another ensemble called Pop Voices. Primarily, when we are putting together the concert, I look for an overall theme, and I just select pieces that will be appropriate for the ensembles but also relevant to the event, he said. I pick a theme, and based on the theme, then I select how the concert will flow and what they're going to wear and what the feel of the show is. Lopes continued by saying, we usually bring guests like local musicians to be part of that event as well. So this year we will have the Brazilian Jazz Project. They will be the ones featured. In the past, we have had a couple of different musicians not only playing with us instrumentally, but also being focused on this. But this year, we are focusing on the Brazilian Jazz Project, which is a trio locally that has done really well as far as bringing the Brazilian style of jazz from the other side of the world. Because usually, when we think of jazz, we think United States. So they will be bringing that Latin flavor connected to that as well. Lopes continued to talk about what he was excited about and looking forward to with this upcoming concert. It's always great to be in the community, and especially this year where our auditorium is under huge remodeling, to have places like the Fort Dodge Museum where we can continue to provide the quality of performances, but also partner with them in their beautiful facility. Lopes added, There's something that excites me. The other thing is that as we rehearse and we dive into this type of repertoire, this it it is giving uh, our students a new perspective in music. We have an opportunity to share some historical facts about the time period and also the type of music and why the music is that way. So I think that the educational side is also very, very important, and I think that we have taken our students into that journey. The admission is free, but they will be accepting free donations with all proceeds going to the Fort Museum. All right, it takes care of everything on the front page of the Fort Dodge Messenger. Moving on now to page two, street work approved by Fort Dodge Council. This is a story by Bill Shea. The Fort Dodge City Council cleared the way for a year's worth of road work by awarding three separate contracts Monday. Two of the contracts are for repairing concrete streets. One of them is for asphalt paving. One of the concrete contracts is for work on busy arterial streets. The council hired Castor Construction, a Ford Dodge, to do the job at a cost of $605,532. Repairs will be done on these sections of the street. That'd be Kenyon Road between Triton Drive and Avenue C, 5th Avenue South between 8th and 12th Streets, 2nd Avenue South between 8th Street and 4th Street. So those three. Iowa Civil Contracting of Victor offered the only other bid of $916,382.80. Castor Construction was also awarded a $194,941 contract for concrete patching on roads that are classified as local streets. Under that contract, the company will be repairing 1st Avenue South east of 32nd Street and 28th Avenue North east of 15th Street. There were no other bidders for that work. The council hired Ford Dodge Asphalt Company to repave parts of 10 streets at a cost of $1,198,318.19. Those streets are South 14th Street between 8th Avenue South and 10th Avenue Southwest, 20th Street between 9th and 11th Avenue South, 8th Avenue South between 14th and 15th Streets, 6th Avenue South between 19th and 21st Streets, 2nd Avenue North between 12th and 15th Streets, 3rd Avenue North between 20th and 22nd Streets, 8 and a half Avenue North between 18th and 20th Streets, 9th Avenue North for from 16th Street to the dead end, Elmhurst Avenue between North 19th Street and the Dodger Stadium parking lot, 20th Street between 10th and 16th Avenues North. Fort Dodge Asphalt was the only other bidder for that work. Councilman David Flattery was absent from the otherwise unanimous votes to award the contracts. This is an interesting story up here next. Aliens? Question mark. Lack of U.S. info on shootdowns breeds wild ideas. This is an AP story out of Washington. With few confirmed details from Joe Biden's White House, the downing of three unknown aerial objects in as many days by U.S. fighter jets has prompted wild speculation about what they were and where they come from. It even fell to his press secretary on Monday to announce earnestly there was no indication of aliens or extraterrestrial activity. Biden had no public events Monday and has offered little reassurance or explanation of what to make of it all following the discovery of a Chinese spy balloon crossing the country and the unprecedented peacetime shootdowns that have followed. U.S. officials said they still know little about the three objects down Friday off the coast of Alaska, Saturday over Canada and Sunday over Lake Huron. But those shootdowns have been part of a more massive response to aerial phenomena, following the balloon episode blamed on ongoing Beijing espionage on an ongoing Beijing espionage program White House press secretary Karine Jean-Pierre did have at least one definitive statement to try to tamp down unrestrained theories I know there's been questions and concerns about this but there is no again no indication of aliens or extraterrestrial activity she said U.S. government insists the three objects did not pose a threat to American security and that even the massive spy balloon provided limited additive capabilities to China's other surveillance programs. Still, they were shot out of the sky out of an abundance of caution, National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said. Biden's unparalleled decision to shoot down four objects over North America in eight days when combined with U.S. officials' efforts to publicly downplay the foreign threat has further to dissonant, the dissonant messages being sent about sensitive efforts to protect the homeland. U.S. officials speaking on the condition of anonymity to discuss internal deliberations acknowledge the confusion, saying the administration wants to keep the American public from becoming unnecessarily worried while also trying to maintain a tough posture toward China. Why don't we do this date in history now? And this, of course, would be for February 14th, Valentine's Day. It's the 45th day of 2023. There are 326 days left in the year. 325 is the airing of this. Um, And then this is Valentine's Day as I'm reading this to you. Um, If you're hearing this on Wednesday morning, it's February 15th. So just think of this in past tense. On this date, February 14th, 1876, inventors Alexander Graham Bell and Elisha Gray applied separately for patents related to the telephone. The U.S. Supreme Court eventually ruled Bell the rightful inventor. In 1912, Arizona became the 48th state of the Union as President William Howard Taft signed a proclamation. In 1913, labor leader Jimmy Hoffa was born in Brazil, Indiana. College football coach Woody Hayes was born in Clifton, Ohio. Sports broadcaster Mel Allen was born in Birmingham, Alabama. In 1924, the Computing Tabulating Recording Company of New York was formally renamed International Business Machines Corporation, or IBM. That happened in 1924 on this day, on February 14th. In 1945, during World War II, British and Canadian forces reached the Rhine River in Germany. In 1967, Aretha Franklin recorded her cover of Otis Redding's Respect at Atlantic Records in New York. In 1984, six-year-old Stormy Jones became the world's first heart-liver transplant recipient when the surgery was performed at Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh. And 10 years ago, February 14, 2013, double amputee Olympic sprinter Oscar Pistorius shot and killed his girlfriend, Reva Steenkamp, at his home in Pretoria, South Africa. He was later convicted of murder and is serving a 13-year prison term. Five years ago, a gunman identified as a former student opened fire with a semi-automatic rifle at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School near Fort Lauderdale, Florida, killing 17 people in the nation's deadliest school shooting since the attack in Newtown, Connecticut more than five years earlier. Nicholas Cruz pleaded guilty to murder in October of 2021 and was sentenced in November 2022 to life in prison without the possibility of parole. One year ago, the Kremlin signaled it was ready to keep talking with the West about security grievances that led to the Ukraine crisis, offering hope that Russia might not invade its neighbor within days. Russia would invade Ukraine less than a week later. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau invoked emergency powers to try to quell the protests by truck drivers and others who paralyzed Ottawa and blocked border crossings in anger over the country's COVID-19 restrictions. Birthdays on the 14th of February include former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg, journalist Carl Bernstein, pro football Hall of Famer Jim Kelly, actor Sakina Jeffrey, and we also have quarterback Drew Bledsoe, who's 51 today. Moving on now to page three of the reading of the Fort Dodge Messenger. Former East SAC teacher pleads guilty to sex abuse, exploitation by school employee. This is a story by Kelby Winger. Dateline, SAC City, Iowa. A former special education teacher at East SAC County High School in Lakeview pleaded guilty on Monday to a pair of felony sexual offenses. Last March, the SAC County Sheriff's Office arrested Stephanie Regine Kelsey, age 35, of SAC City and charged her with eight counts of third-degree sexual abuse, a Class C felony and one count of sexual exploitation with a school employee, a Class D felony. Criminal complaints that she admitted to having sexual contact with a 15-year-old male student on at least three separate occasions between August 25, 2021 and March 4, 2022. The alleged sexual acts happened at Kelsey's home and in a vehicle at Haggie County Park. Kelsey pleaded not guilty in the charges in May. In January, the SAC County Attorney's Office and Kelsey's Defense Counsel were able to reach a plea agreement. On Tuesday, Kelsey pleaded guilty to one count of third-degree sexual abuse and one count of sexual exploitation by a school employee. The remaining charges against her will be dismissed. A sentencing hearing is scheduled for April 10th. Class C e felonies carry a maximum prison sentence of 10 years and Class D felonies a maximum of 5 years. So if Kelsey could be facing a maximum of 15 years in prison, as well as criminal fines and the requirement of registering as a sex offender. In other news here on page 3, U-Haul driver's NYC rampage leaves one dead and eight hurt. This is an AP story out of New York. A man driving a U-Haul truck swerved onto sidewalks and plowed into cyclists and scooter riders in New York City on Monday, killing one person and injuring eight others before police were able to pin the careening vehicle against a building following a miles-long pursuit through Brooklyn. The driver was arrested and taken to a police station. His son identified him as Wang Sor, age 62, a troubled man with a history of harmful behavior and stints behind bars. The mayhem unfolded over a harrowing 48 minutes as the truck tore through Brooklyn's bustling Bay Ridge neighborhood, hitting people at several points along the way before veering on and off a highway as police gave chase. Police Commissioner Keechint Subal described it as a violent rampage but said there was no evidence of terrorism involvement. The nine people struck by the vehicle ranged in age from 30 to age 66. All were men. One of the injured people was a police officer. The 44-year-old man who was killed suffered a head injury when he was hit by the truck roughly a half hour after it struck the first victim. The police department said in a statement, The truck's winding route ended when a police cruiser cut it off and blocked it against a building near the entrance to a tunnel leading from Brooklyn to Manhattan, more than three miles from where the chase began. In the brief section here on page 3, parking lot by Municipal Building will be closed. The parking lot directly behind the Fort Dodge Municipal Building will be closed all day Wednesday. People who regularly park there can... Park in the lot to the east at the corner of 2nd Avenue South and 9th Street. The parking lot is being closed to support renovations at the Municipal Building and the construction of the Ford Dodge Fiber Broadband Utility. Our next brief, School Board OK Superintendent Contract. The Ford Fort Dodge School Board, Board of Education on Monday approved a three-year contract for Josh Porter to assume the role of district superintendent on July 1st. Porter, who is currently the Fort Dodge Senior High Athletic and Activities Director, was named the district's next superintendent on February 2nd. On Monday, the school board formally approved his contract. The contract is three years, and Porter's salary is set at $215,000 a year. $215,000. its a lot of quid. Porter is a 1999 graduate of Fort Dodge High School. He moved back to Fort Dodge in 2021 after 14 years in the Clorinda School District. He served as the Athletic Director, Interim High School Principal, Middle School Principal, and Transportation Director there before applying for and accepting the Fort Dodge Senior High School Athletic and Activities position in May of 2021. Porter obtained his bachelor's degree from Central College in 2006. His master's from Grand Canyon University in 2010 and secured his superintendent license through Drake University this past summer. From there, we move on to page 5. This will be of interest to everybody. 11 states consider right to repair for farming equipment. This is a story out of Denver, Colorado by the Associated Press. On Colorado's northeastern plains where the pencil straight horizon divides golden fields and blue sky, a farmer named Danny Wood scrambles to plant and harvest proso millet, uh, dryland corn, and winter wheat in his short seasonal windows. That is until his high-tech Steiger 370 tractor conks out. The tractor's manufacturer doesn't allow Wood to make certain fixes himself, And last spring, his fertilizing operations were stalled for three days before the servicer arrived to add a few lines of missing computer code for $950. That's where they have us by the barrel. It's more like we are renting it than buying it, said Wood, who spent $300,000 on the used tractor. Wood's plight, echoed by farmers across the country, has pushed lawmakers in Colorado and 10 other states to introduce bills that would force manufacturers to provide the tools, software, parts, and manuals needed for farmers to do their own repairs, thereby avoiding steep labor costs and delays that imperil profits. The manufacturers and the dealers have a monopoly on that repair market because it's lucrative, said Representative Brianna Titone, T-I-T-O-N-E. a Democrat, and one of the bill's sponsors. Farmers just want to get their machine going again. In Colorado, the legislation is largely being pushed by Democrats while their Republican colleagues find themselves stuck in a tough spot, torn between the right-leaning farming constituents asking to be able to repair their own machines and the manufacturing businesses that oppose the idea. The manufacturers argue that changing the current practice with this type of legislation would force companies to expose trade secret- secrets. They also say it would... Make it easier for farmers to tinker with the software and illegally crank up the horsepower and bypass the emissions controller, risking operator safety and the environment. That is such a crap argument. Similar, I'm a thousand percent biased for the farmers on this one, everyone. Similar arguments around intellectual property have been leveled against the broader campaign called Right to Repair. It's a problem with cars, too which has picked up steam across the country, crusading for the right to fix everything from iPhones to hospital ventilators during the pandemic. In 2011, Congress passed a law ensuring that car owners and independent mechanics, not just authorized dealerships, had access to the necessary tools and information to fix problems. Ten years later, the Federal Trade Commission pledged to beef up its right to repair enforcement at the direction of Joe Biden. And just last year, Titoni sponsored and passed Colorado's first right-to-repair law, empowering people who use wheelchairs with the tools and information to fix them. For the right-to-repair farm equipment, from thin tractors used between grapevines to behemoth combines for harvesting grain that can cost over half a million dollars, Colorado is joined by 10 states, including Florida, Maryland, Missouri, New Jersey, Texas, and Vermont. It should be Iowa, too. Many of the bills are finding bipartisan support, said Nathan Proctor, who leads Public Interest Research Group's National Right to Repair campaign. But in Colorado's House Committee on Agriculture, Democrats pushed the bill forward in a 9-4 vote along party lines with Republicans in opposition, even though the bill's second sponsor is Republican Representative Ron Weinberg. That's really surprising, and that upset me, said the Republican Wood. Wood's tractor, which flies an American flag reading Farmers First, isn't his only machine to break down. His grain harvesting combine was dropping into idle, but the servicer took five days to arrive on Wood's farm, a setback that could mean a hailstorm decimates a wheat field or the soil temperature moves beyond the Goldilocks zone for planting. Our crop is ready to harvest, and we can't wait five days, but there's nothing else to do, said Wood. When it's broke down, you just sit there and wait, and that's not acceptable. You can be losing $85,000 a day. Representative Richard Holtorf, the Republican who represents Wood's district and is a farmer himself, said he's being pulled between his constituents and the dealerships in his district covering the largely rural northeast corner of the state. He voted against the measure because he believes it will financially impact local dealerships in rural areas and could jeopardize trade secrets. There's the Republicans on your side. I do sympathize with my farmers, said Holtorf, but he added, I don't think it's the role of the government to be forcing the sale of their intellectual property. At the packed hearing last week that spilled into a second room in Colorado's capital, the core concerns raised in testimony were farmers illegally slipping around emissions control and cranking up the horsepower. I know growers. They can change horsepower and they can change emissions. They're going to do it, said Russ Ball, sales manager at 21st Century Equipment, a John Deere dealership in western states. The bill's proponents acknowledge that the legislation could make it easier for operators to modify horsepower and emissions controls, but argue that farmers are already able to tinker with their machines and doing so would remain illegal. This January, the Farm Bureau and the farm equipment manufacturer John Deere did sign a memorandum of understanding a right-to-repair agreement made in the free market and without government intervention. The agreement stipulates that John Deere will share some parts, diagnostic and repair codes, and manuals to allow farmers to do their own fixes. The Colorado bill's detractors lawed that agreement as a strong middle ground, while Titone said it wasn't enough, evidenced by six of Colorado's biggest farmworker associations that support the bill. Proctor, who was tracking 20 right-to-repair proposals in a number of industries across the country, said the memorandum of understanding has fallen far short. Farmers are saying no. Proctor said, we want the real thing. I have no problem stating I'm biased on that story because just like a car, you can fix your own car you're supposed to. That's an issue with Tesla right now, the right-to-repair. But uh, quite generally, you can go buy a a scan tool read the codes that's going on with it, and uh, address it as necessary. Why shouldn't it be that way with farm equipment? I mean, you can practice your own law. You can file your own divorce, all that sort of thing in the court of law by yourself without hiring an attorney. You can file a lawsuit by yourself without hiring an attorney. Why can't you fix your tractor? Anyway, uh, moving on now because we are the halfway point here of this reading of the Fort Dodge Messenger you're on iris the iowa radio reading information service for the blind and print disabled this is andy here with you reading today we thank you so much for listening all of our programming is for the listenership of our audience and if you have any questions comments or concerns give us a call here at the shop 515-243-6833 or toll free 1-877-404-4747 4747 yes And we move on now to page four, back up to page four, and we bring you the obituary, since it's the halfway point for Tuesday, February 14th, this edition, as airing here on Wednesday, February 15th. We start off with Doris Park. Doris M. Park, age 100, of Hutchinson, Minnesota, formerly of Fort Dodge, passed away on Friday, February 10th, 2023. She was born July 1st, 1922, to Carl and Anna Swanson in Chicago, Illinois. She married Robert Park in 1946, and then they made their home in Fort Dodge. She was a homemaker, bookkeeper for various companies in Fort Dodge, and upon retirement, very active in the Marion Home Auxiliary. She was preceded in death by her parents, siblings Carl and Ruth, her husband Robert, and her son-in-law Brian Bonte. Left to cherish her memories are her children, Diane, married to Dave Kem of Des Moines, Michael, married to Judy Park of Fort Dodge, and Beverly Bonte of Hutchinson, Minnesota. She also has four beloved granddaughters. Bridget, married to John Bonte Chun, is her last name, of Minneapolis, Minnesota. Emily, married to Austin Smith of New York, New York. Becca, married to Nick Brady of Kim, or her last name is Kim. They're of Sunnyside, New York. And B, married to Tim, her last name is Bonte Brown. They're in North Oaks, Minnesota, along with Jeff, Jamie, Kim Hansen, and their ch- families. Great-grandchildren, Eleanor, Isla, Alden, Koa, and June added special joy to her life. No services are planned, and memorials may be sent to Common Cup Ministries at 105 2nd Avenue, Southwest, Number 2 in Hutchinson, Minnesota, 55350. Next up we go to Susan and Jerry Olson of Pocahontas. Susan Joy Olson passed away on January 24th, 2023 at Rock Creek Assisted Living in Ankeny. She was 74. Memorial services for both Susan and Jerry is 11 a.m. Friday, February 17th, 2023 at St. Peter Lutheran Church in Pocahontas with Pastor John Meyer officiating. Burial is in the Grant Township Cemetery near Pocahontas. Visitation is 10 to 11 a.m. Friday, February 17th at St. Peter Lutheran Church in Pocahontas. The Powers Funeral Home of Pocahontas, Iowa is handling the arrangements. Online condolences and obituaries may be left at www.powersfh.net. Next we have Josephine Ayala Wilson-Thompson. Josephine Ayala Wilson-Thompson, age 88, of Fort Dodge, passed away Saturday February 11th, 2023 at the Fort Dodge Villa Care Center. Funeral services will be at 1 p.m. Thursday, February 16th, 2023 at the Loffersweiler Funeral Home with Monsignor Kevin McCoy officiating. Burial will follow at Corpus Christi Cemetery. A time for visiting will be one hour prior to the service at the funeral home. The full obituary may be viewed at www.LoffersweilerFuneralHome.com. Next up, Marvin Axman. Marvin Leroy Axman, the son of Eric and Astrid Samuelson Axman, was born on January 2nd, 1940, in Fort Dodge, Iowa. He was raised on a farm northwest of Pomeroy and attended country grade country school, grades kindergarten through eighth grade, and graduated from Pomeroy High School in 1958. Marv was baptized and confirmed at Elfsborg Lutheran Church participating in Junior Missionary Society, Lutheran League, and Vacation Bible School. After graduating from Pomeroy High School in 1958, Marv attended a trade school in Minneapolis for a few years before working as a veterinarian assistant for Dr. Brenny in Pocahontas. Marv and Karen were married on July 25, 1964, in Forest City, Iowa. They had four children, Bob, Bill, Ryan, and Andrea. Marv served in the Air National Guard for six years. In 1964, Marv started employment at German Mutual Insurance Association in Pomeroy. In 1972, he was named manager and assumed ownership of the Axman Insurance Agency. While employed in insurance, he also served 17 years as a director of Grinnell Mutual Reinsurance Company. Marv was active in his community where he served several years on the school board, which included school board president, served on the Pomeroy City Council and St. John Church Board and its various committees. In retirement, he enjoyed attending Golden K. Kiwanis and Fort Dodge and thoroughly enjoyed attending his children's and grandchildren's activities. Grandchildren meant a lot to Marv. He survived by his wife, Karen. Their three children, Bill, married to Angie Axman of Pomeroy, Iowa, Ryan, married to Amanda Axman of Mount Pleasant, Iowa, and Andrea Renner of Kanawha, Iowa, Six grandchildren, Adam Axman, Kristen Axman, Connor Axman, Alyssa Axman, Riley Renner, and Paul Renner. His two sisters, Vivian Claussen of Dexter, Iowa, and Dolores Locke of Urbandale, Iowa. He is also survived by Karen's siblings, Sandy Hieglick, Cheryl, married to Monty Lequa, Christy Jackson, and daughters-in-law, Diane Jackson and Helen Axman. He is preceded in death by his parents and his son, Bob Axman, in December of 1976, brother Kenneth Axman Sr., brothers-in-law Jim Clawson and Carl Locke, and by Karen's brother Don Jackson Jr. No services are planned at this time. The Gunderson Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Fort Dodge are in charge of arrangements. Our final obituary is for Jim R. Brockoven, or Bockoven, B-O-C-K-O-V-E-N, age 85 of Fort Dodge, who passed away on Saturday, February 11, 2023 a celebration of Jim's life will be held at a later date. www.loffersweilerfuneralhome.com is where you can find out more. Some funeral announcements here. Loffersweiler and Seavers Funeral Home located at 307 South 12th Street in Fort Dodge. We have Mary Lou Fiala. Visitation is Wednesday, 4 to 7 p.m. That's today at the Loffersweiler Funeral Home. Funeral services are private. From there, we go to Josephine Wilson Thompson, age 88. Funeral is at 1 o'clock Thursday, the Law Funeral Home, visitation one hour prior at the funeral home. Michael Cavanaugh, age 87, Graveside, Monday, February 20th, 1030 a.m. at the Corpus Christi Cemetery. Darlene R. Nelson, age 84, please note the dates. Funeral is Monday, February 27th. a.m. at Holy Trinity Church. Visitation Sunday, February 26, 2 to 5 p.m. at Holy Trinity Church. And finally, Jim Bokovan, age 85, celebration of life at a later date. Well, it's the halfway point, so that means it's time to uh, move on to more things and bring you the world of sports right now is what it looks like. The one and only. The headline photo shows Chiefs are back on top of the NFL world. I'll bring that to you after we bring you this wrestling story. The headline photo for that shows St. Edmund's Sam Meyer controls his opponent from Hampton-Dumont earlier this season. Gales taking Meyer and Orris to state wrestling. Class 1A area schools will be re- well represented in Des Moines. It's written by Dana Becker. Dateline, Des Moines, Iowa. For the first time since 2016, the St. Edmund Wrestling Team will bring multiple qualifiers to the state championships. Action in Class 1A begins bright and early here Wednesday at 9 a.m. with the first sessions, which includes the opening round and start of consolations. Senior Ronnie Orris qualified at 120 pounds and will take on Ruger Kincaid of Baxter, while sophomore Sam Meyer is in the 132-pound field and gets Steve Brandenburg of Lake Mills. Both are making their state debuts and the first Gale qualifier since Ryan Duckett in 2019. It's such a tremendous accomplishment by both Ronnie and Sam to make it to state, SEHS head coach Eugene Carlson said. They are both incredible kids and great leaders for our program. Hopefully this is the start of a trend of St. Edmund constantly having kids down at the state tournaments once again. Oris enters with a record of 30-16, and having won Eight of his last 11 matches overall. Two of those defeats came to West Hancock's Teague Smith, the number three seed in the state bracket, a district runner-up. Ores also placed second at the AGWSR Invitational, third at the Carroll Invitational, and third at the Doug Wood Invitational, and fifth at the North Central Conference Tournament. Kincaid is a freshman who has a record of 21 and 17 overall. The winner between Orris and Kincaid will face six-seed freshman and Alb of Auburnett, who has a record of 35-10. and We are going to go down to state ready to show what we can do, Orris said. I've put in a lot of time during the offseason, and I am excited to show that off. Meyer has a mark of 25-11 and coming into his bout with Brandenburg, a freshman with a record of 31-4. and The winner between those two will get top seed and defending state champion Gable Porter from from Underwood. This season, Meyer, who was also a standout on the St. Edmund football team, won a district title and was second at the NCC. He also finished second at the Doug Wood to fellow state qualifier Charlie Veet of East Sac County and was a runner-up of the AGWSR Tourney. I'm hoping to add my name to the list of St. Edmund State place winners, Myers said. That is the goal now. Getting to Wells Fargo has been a dream of mine, so qualifying feels great. The last time the Gales sent two wrestlers to State was in 2016 with Cole Allison and Peyton Sitzman. Allison won his opening round match and finished 8th, while Sitzman went 3-2 and two and placed 7th. Emmitsburg has seven qualifiers with Ryan Brennan and Jace Nelson Brown each receiving seeds. Brennan, a senior with a record of 27 and 3, is the number five seed at 145 pounds, while Nelson Brown, a junior, is 36 and 6 with a number two at 170. Ryan Wirtz, Justin Wirtz, Cade Shirk, Ben Saxton, and Gage Jorgensen are other E Hawk qualifiers. Pocahontas area pushed five through districts. With Dorrance Williams receiving the eighth seed at 182 pounds. The senior won a district title and is 39 and 4 this season. Verde Klocky, Ryan Summerlot, Alex Wellander, and Joseph Sanders are also competing for the Indians. Braden Burns and Charlie Veet from East Sac County qualifier, along with Ian Conan of Mason, or rather Manson Northwest Webster, and Brock Natras from South Central Calhoun. Veet is the number 7 seed at 138 pounds and received an opening round bye. All right, and as promised here, one and only Super Bowl champions Kansas City Chiefs are back on top of NFL World. And it shows Kansas City tight end Travis Kelsey celebrating the team's Super Bowl win in Philadelphia, holding up that Vince Lombardi trophy that happened on Sunday in Phoenix. A story by Josh DeBeau of the Associated Press, Dateline Phoenix, Arizona. Andy Reid posed with the Vince Lombardi trophy as he took the stage the morning after his second Super Bowl win and simply said, It never gets old standing right here. As long as Reid is dialing up plays and Patrick Mahomes is executing them, the Kansas City Chiefs will be in contention to get right back into this spot. The duo, an innovative play caller and a young quarterback whose achievements already rival some of the game's greatest ever, won their second Super Bowl together in the past four seasons when Kansas City beat the Philadelphia Eagles 38-35 on Sunday. As long as Andy Reid is coaching us, we'll always have a chance, Mahomes said Monday at a news conference honoring the Super Bowl winning coach and MVP. I'll keep the big guy around a couple more years at least and we will try to be back at this game as many times as possible. Since Mahomes became the starter in Kansas City in 2018, the Chiefs have made it to the AFC Championship every game, uh, that game every season. The Super Bowl three times and won it twice. This title might have been even sweeter than the first following the 2019 season's, as Mahomes overcame a high ankle sprain that limited him in the playoffs and quieted the skeptics who doubted whether he could have the same kind of success after the Chiefs traded away game-breaking wide receiver Tyreek Hill. But with a strong offensive line that held the Eagles' vaunted pass rush to no sacks, all-pro tight end Travis Kelsey, and a cast of mostly younger receivers who stepped up in the Super Bowl, the Chiefs still had the league's top offense, thanks mostly to the combo of Reed and Mahomes. It's hard not to hear that stuff, especially in today's age and social media and everything like that, Mahomes said. You hear how not good we're going to be. All you can do is prove it on the football field. I'm not a guy that's going to respond and say stuff back to people. I'm just going to go out there and prove it on the football field. Once you do that, there's nothing they can really say. All that's left to ask about Mahomes after a week in which he won his second regular season MVP award and second Super Bowl MVP MVP, is where he will eventually rank among the game's greatest quarterbacks. Mahomes is already on a pace. No one else has set. He joined the Hall of Famer Joe Montana and Tom Brady, both of those considered by many the best quarterbacks in the Super Bowl era, as the only players to ever win multiple MVP awards in the regular season and Super Bowl. Mahomes did it in his sixth season, while it took Brady 11 years and Montana 12 until they accomplished the feat. Mahomes became the seventh player to win the NFL regular season MVP and Super Bowl MVP in the same season, with the first six already enshrined in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. The Super Bowl win by Mahomes also broke some hexes as he became the first MVP to win the title since Kurt Warner in the 1999 season and the first player ever to lead the league in yards, passing and win the Super Bowl in the same season. The decision to trade Hill has set the Chiefs up as well as they head into the offseason in good shape on the salary cap, with 12 projected draft picks and a strong rookie class from 2022 that only should improve. But most importantly, they have the coach and quarterback, with the 64-year-old Reed pointing to Mahomes when he said he has no plans to step down any time in the near future. I am enjoying what I'm doing, Reed said. I have this guy over here who is a pretty good player, so I'm doing okay. From there we go to Dodgers and Lumsden Flores State Bound. That's written by Dana Becker. Or Dana Becker. Dateline Lamars, Iowa. Arissa Lumsden and Gabby Flores secured individual bids to the state bowling tournament for the Fort Dodge girls here Monday at a Class 2A district contest. Lamars claimed team honors with a team total of 3,203, which was the highest score in 2A, with Council Bluffs Lewis Central second with a 2,725. Fort Dodge finished 4th overall. We knew it was going to be a tough district coming in. Fort Dodge senior head coach Nick Vinson said, I thought the top teams performed as we expected and a couple others overperformed, but to get two girls qualified, that is a really good feeling. Lumsden had the 4th overall individual total with a 587 series, uh, with a 587 series, and Flores, the 8th, with a 560. The top three individual finishers, including Lewis Centrals Alicia Odin, all broke 600, with Odin posting a 696 series. They got there in different ways, Finson said. We felt pretty good about getting one qualifier, so to get two, it almost feels like stealing. Lumsden had game scores of 196, 201, and 190, while Flores had 155, 171, and 234. Her her 234 total was the fifth highest in the district. The individual 2A state championships take place Wednesday, February 22nd in Waterloo at Maples Lanes. Another sports news, on page 9, Dodger boys set to close regular season at home. That's written by Dana Becker. The Fort Dodge boys will wrap up the regular season here Tuesday evening against Des Moines North. Tip is set for 7.45 p.m. inside the Dodger gym. Fort Dodge found out its opening round postseason opponent this week as they will head to West Des Moines Dowling next Monday in a Class 4A Substate 2 opener. The winner advances to take on Cedar Falls. Senior Javion Jondal leads the way for Fort Dodge Senior High School at 16 points per game, shooting 46% from the field. He also is the top Dodger in rebounds per game at 7.4 and assists per game at 1.8. Sophomore Cade Westerhoff averages 9 points and 4 rebounds, with junior Ty Adams adding 5 points. Chiron Wilson, another senior, is posting 3 rebounds per game. For the Polar Bears, Jaden McGregory is the team leader in points, rebounds, and assists. The freshman averages 14 points on 44% shooting with seven rebounds and three assists. David Kolker, who is committed to join the Iowa State University football team in the fall, adds eight points and 6.6 rebounds, while Kenny Brooks adds 12 points and 5.5 boards a night. Ford Dodge has won two of three in the series, with North winning overall this year, 64-41. Overall, the Polar Bears have won nine of the last 15 meetings between the two and six of the last nine. Gale boys bow out at West Fork, Dateline Sheffield. A valiant third-quarter rally by the St. Edmund boys was not enough here Monday as the Gales fell to West Fork in Class 1A postseason action, 58-45. The Warhawks with 17-4 record overall advance in 1A, District 2 to face North Union back here on Thursday. The Warriors topped Northwood Kensett last night, 30, or 83-46. to for the Gales, with a 5-18 season, Jack McElroy scored 14 points with JT Loffersweiler adding 10. Jackson Palmer and Sam Miracle each had 9. West Fork raced out to a 19-6 lead after the first and held a 20-point advantage at one point. Down by 18 heading into the third, St. Edmund cut the deficit down two single digits, but the Warhawks answered, taking a 42-30 lead into the fourth. We made quite a good run on them. SEHS head coach Adolf Kochendorfer Dorfer said, "If we would have started the game the same way we did in the third, it would have been a different story. We just couldn't get going there early on. I thought Jack played really well. He guarded their leading scorer and held him to 8 and never came out, playing all 32 minutes. JT did a great job as well and was really strong on the glass." Asher Weissman had 14 points to lead West Fork with Josiah Shyam Bombo adding 9. Cade Eberling, Sage Sunken, and Gavin Kronk each scored 8. This was the final game for St. Edmund seniors Palmer, Aaron Lurson, and Johnny Dickerson. Palmer scored nearly 800 points in his three-year career. Johnny came off the bench and provided a spark in the second half. Koshendorfer said... He came out this year for the first time and really helped us a lot. Jackson was a regular since his sophomore season, and Aaron did all the little things we asked of him. They were a really great group, and we are sorry to see them go, he said. And finally here before we go, we'll bring you the area scoreboard. Manson Northwest Webster boys advance past SV. What is SV? Southeast Valley. Okay. Dateline Manson, Iowa. The Manson-Northwest Webster boys used 19-point efforts by Logan Moline and Kellen Coble to race past Southeast Valley here Monday night in Class 2A postseason play. Colby Essing joined his teammates in double figures with 10, while Reese Olsen scored 9 and Brody Poppin 8. The Cougars will take on the OAB CIG, which would be Odebult-Arthur-Battle Creek-Ida-Grove Thursday. For the Jaguars, Eli Johnson and Nate Scott each had 10. Tritons open softball season. Our next short scoreboard. From Denison, Texas, the Iowa Central softball team opened their season here at the Winter Blast Tournament going 2-2. Two two. The Tritons picked up wins over Northern Oklahoma Enid 7-6 and Carl Albert State 9-1, falling to Murray State College and Lamar State Port, Ar- Port Arthur. In the win over Enid, Jory Hajek. Drove in two runs with Riley Gilroy going two for two with two runs and two walks. Amber McKinney also had an RBI with Gilroy picking up the win with four strikeouts. McKinney was four for four with three RBI against Carl Albert State, and Hayek or Hayek had two hits and scored twice. Gabriella Tabor drove in two and Taylor Lee earned the win. The Tritons head to LaBette on Saturday for a doubleheader. Finally, Bulldogs top HD Cal. Dateline Algona, Iowa. The Algona boys posted a 70-60 victory over Hampton-Dumont-Cal. Here Friday night, Ben Helmers and Alex Manske each scored 21 points to lead the Bulldogs, while Tristan Larson added 9. And that's all the time we have for this reading of the Ford Dodge Messenger. This is the Tuesday, February 14th edition. is brought to you here on the morning of Wednesday, February 15th. Hope you're having a great start to your day, everyone. It's been great to be here with you. This is Andrew Haupt saying thank you so much for listening to Iris. Have a nice day and straight ahead.